This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome back. Chandro Tar, Sandy Clough on my left. Thanks to Danny Bailey in the booth and Peter in the booth making us, uh, making all this work. Catch us over at MileHighSports.com or on the free Miley Sports app if you're not listening over the air and recommend you do. Maybe it might even be a little easier. Take us with you in your pocket, so to say. And Sandy is the the, the the Nuggets find themselves in uncharted territory here. Finally in the NBA Finals for the first time in their history. We'll have Coach George Carl at the bottom of the hour to discuss it with us. The role of ownership in this and, you know, obviously it is complicated. The uh, Kyle Clark of of Nine News uh, had a very entertaining uh, tweet right before basically Game Four talked about the idea of how nobody had been able to watch the Nuggets, and it's obvious that that's the case. And said, "Well, that's okay because for the Nuggets, not being watched is their superpower." Uh, there, there are jokes to be made, obviously, given the the frustrations between Altitude and Comcast over the last few years. I get all of that. That said, you started off the show with that, and we didn't really dig into it, but the Nuggets organization right now, when you're talking about how far they're over the cap and into luxury tax, uh, it's it's real. And they have, for a while, the, the presumption was that this ownership group would not go into the luxury tax for an opportunity to win a title. Well, they certainly spent as much as you could for the NHL team. Obviously, it's a different cap situation. But in this case, they have leaned fully into embracing this title run, understanding what they have with Jokic and doing what they can to make sure it works. And they have given Tim Connolly in the previous years and they have given Calvin Booth the uh, ability and authority to make significant moves in order to, to burnish this team's potential in making it. We saw earlier this century that he did the same thing, but uh, lost interest once the Nuggets didn't break through with the title. I suspect the same thing might well have happened and I suppose might still happen if the Nuggets don't win a title this year, if Miami beats them uh, in the NBA Finals. And again, I all but discount the possibility that Boston would be there at this point. Uh, it's never happened before. Now 150 uh, and maybe, 0 when you're up maybe, 3-0. Maybe someday in the very distant future, someone will come back because it happened with the Red Sox in baseball in 2004 against the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. Maybe an NBA team someday will do the same thing. In fact, among teams that were down 3-0, not many came closer than the Denver Nuggets to doing just that. Not against George Carl's Seattle Sonics in 1994, but against Jerry Sloan, John Stockton, Carl Malone's Utah Jazz. The Nuggets were down in that best of seven. Remember, the Seattle series was best of five. They were down three games to none. They won game four here. They won game five in Salt Lake. They won game six here, and they were competitive in game seven. Not many teams have come closer, and not many teams have even won as many as three straight games, right, and forced a game seven after mm-hmm. being down three. Oh, so it, it – it, but for the sake of this conversation, it, it, to discount Boston means that it will be Denver and Miami – Possibly much to the chagrin of ESPN, ABC, the people really wanted Lakers Celtics again, even though at least one of them, if if not both, and they won't get either one. 
I think on some level, yes, Stan Kroenke deserves credit. I, I'm not saying he's the, the greatest owner we've ever had because that would be absurd for some of the reasons you just identified. But I think he does deserve a measure of credit. And uh, his son, Josh Kroenke, also deserves a measure of credit. The only thing recently that I didn't quite understand was why a year ago at a press conference that, again, did not go terribly well, Josh Kroenke felt the need to express uh, some level of bitterness toward Tim Connolly for leaving. Um, I think we have company around town in our industry here in Denver, in the media, some prominent voices who believe that was the best thing that ever happened to the Denver Nuggets in the last year, that Tim Connolly left and that Calvin Booth replaced him with a completely different approach and uh, with undoubtedly a very different team than the Nuggets would have if Tim Connolly were still the president of the Denver Nuggets. I'm one of those people. I like Tim Connolly. I like the work Tim Connolly has done. I, I like the person. I, I have no no beef with Tim Connolly. But uh, in, it took Calvin Booth to get over a couple blind spots. And I appreciate what Connolly built. But there are not there are guys being a There are guys that can and this happens with coaches, it happens with GMs, whatever, right? That happens with players. There are guys that can get you from being bad to respectable. There are guys that can get you from being respectable or to good. There are even some guys that can get you from from good to great. But getting you from good to champion is a different leap. And I think that what you found with Connolly is one of those guys that can get you from all the way down, quite frankly, from being bad to good. That's that's an impressive thing. It's one of the reasons that Minnesota brought him in. Now, he then Minnesota's made a disastrous trade the way. <laughs> for Rudy Gobert now that's going to bite them for a, a, a while. But you needed Calvin Booth to look at the pieces and parts and, and, and not just look at it and say, I'm going to iterate on what Connolly did. Look at it and say, I'm going to look at everything we have and decide if this actually fits my vision of what we need. And what everybody could agree on is that you had an all-time great in Jokic. Yep. But beyond that, there was disagreement. And I'm sure even within the organization, on any combination of several moves made by Calvin Booth, or perhaps not made by Calvin Booth, who on uh, opening night here on local television, I know that a lot of people didn't necessarily have access to it, but made it very clear that uh, until now he had seen nothing from Michael Porter that would come close to justifying his status as a max player. And I'm not sure we ever will see that from Michael Porter, but Michael Porter has been a useful player. And to Tim Connolly's credit, uh, although not under his watch necessarily, Aaron Gordon this year evolved into uh, a very capable man up front who would take on uh, some of the physical challenges as he did last night when LeBron James decided mm-hmm. to try to rough him up to get his own team going. Um, uh, Jokic and Murray have established a wonderful uh, partnership as a tandem. But Aaron Gordon this year emerged as a a player, I think, for a lot of us, even better than anything 
we could ever have imagined when they traded for him. And he certainly wasn't that player right after the trade was made and he was first brought up here, uh, brought out here. He was not that player last year, but he became that player uh, this year. And it was almost like they got a new player in Aaron Gordon along with Contavious Caldwell-Pope, along right. with Bruce Brown. Um, almost as if they got a new player in Aaron Gordon and, of course, a healthy player in uh, Michael Porter Jr., uh, everybody agreed that Jokic was the cornerstone and, and uh, to player. Certain... But otherwise, in terms of the team's construct, there was considerable disagreement. And Calvin Booth had both the authority and the wisdom to make exactly the changes slash additions that he made. Right. He got it. Specifically all adding Caldwell Pope right. and Ish Smith, which got he had to take right. on that salary to, to bring it, it in. Right. Uh, you go get Bruce Brown, you draft Christian Brown, and and I think it's it's easy, easy to look and say, okay, the trade for Thomas Bryant did not work out. The signing of Reggie Jackson did not work That's out. That's all right. But, but you know what? But they had the luxury of not playing those guys and if they didn't work nobody out. Nobody at the time thought those were bad moves. Nobody. Nobody thought those were bad but moves. Even if nobody you, that I'm even aware. Even if you did. So sometimes that happens. It doesn't I, work out. I know, but there were always going to be ninth, 10th guys right. off your bench. That, they, that they was were, never going to change. They were back change. of the bench guys. And what we debated was not even Michael Malone's decision to go with eight players, but his apparent rigidity in deploying those eight players. That changed in this series. Mm -hmm. It changed in most of the games in which Nikola Jokic's customary rest periods, plural, were not used as rest periods. Last night, the latest example, but hardly the only one, in which a decision, I believe, was made at halftime by Michael Malone, perhaps with the mood of his players in mind, we're going for it tonight. We're down 15. We're going to win this game. And in order to win this game, Nikola Jokic has to play the last 24 minutes of this basketball game. Not 22, not 20. Not resting at the start of the fourth quarter, even though the Nuggets had pulled close by then. No. He's playing the whole half. And there was some risk, minor risk. They lose the game. It's three games to one. They're off today. They play tomorrow night. I'm sure you'll well, LeBron James was playing all 48 of them. So, okay. They, they would have but had they to, didn't the Lakers know that. would have had to deal with that too. They didn't know that. Malone didn't know but that. They knew he was going to play 40. You knew he would because he's played I know, 40 every game. But he played 48. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that. Right. It, it had nothing to do with whether LeBron played 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, or all 48. Well, my point is just it was a minimal to risk. play Jokic. Well, okay, I, I agree with you. Minimal risk, but there was some risk. Mm -hmm. sure. what, what if he gets hurt playing those extra minutes? Uh, what if you don't win the game? And he's tired, and then you lose another one. He's a little one. tired. You right. might lose another one, and then everybody's wondering why in – for playoff purposes, a relatively meaningless game. You're all already up 3-0. Why you gassed him in game four when you didn't have to? I thought he was right, but it's easy for me to say a thousand miles away, all right, mm -hmm. or more. Okay, that's easy for me to say. I thought he made the right call. I thought he made the right call, and we talked about it at the time. I thought they were going to win the game at halftime, even though they were down by 15, and I'm getting text messages from 
very good friends of mine who watch every Nuggets game as closely as I do who are saying, let this one go. It's gone. It's gone. The game was decided in the first half. The Nuggets were flat, which they were. The Nuggets are allowing layups after layup, after layup, after layup, after layup. Not just to LeBron. They don't have it tonight. And Michael Malone made a different call. And I think his players made a different call, too. His players never for a moment, and I sense this, and I have never had this feeling about the Nuggets, certainly not in a game that clinches a series for them. Uh, I wasn't, well, they were playing Minnesota in game five here. I was pretty sure they win that game. But I, I, I didn't have the feeling about game four in Minnesota, that same feeling. And they they lost in overtime. Uh, came back late. You know, good for them. But I, I didn't have the same feeling of confidence. Not in uh, game six against Phoenix. In Phoenix did I have the same confidence. Last night, I did. And Malone did. And Malone's a lot closer than I am and has a lot more at stake on, on the decision. I agree in the long run, it probably wasn't much of a risk. But look at the payoff now he gets pretty much nine full days of rest before he has to play again on June 1st and no earlier. Now it looks now it looks great. Plenty of time to rest. Uh, I think the concern would be that it's too much time and you say, well, it's the same for Miami, and I said that a little bit earlier myself. If they win tonight, well, they're going to be off for a long time. Here's the difference. With that long layoff, Tyler Harrow has a great chance to play in the series. Yeah. If they were playing game one on Thursday, Tyler Harrow probably wouldn't play in the series, probably wouldn't be ready. Now with this long layoff, good chance that he will play at least at some point in the NBA Finals. So Miami needs the extra time. I hope the Nuggets will be fine. But it, it's just, even a week could be okay. Uh, eight, nine days, I, I do worry about that a little bit. Oh, but all the more reason to play Jokic uh, 45 and Murray 43. And uh, Gordon played more than 40 minutes. Porter played more than 40 minutes. Uh, you know, he really played six guys last night, and Brown only played 20. Green played 10. Brown didn't play at all. Christian Brown right. didn't play at all. Um, he went, I, I guess, double-figure minutes <laughs> with seven, but Green only played 10 minutes and was not in during key moments. Um, Brown played 20, and I didn't think it was necessarily a great game for Bruce Brown, minus nine in 20 minutes. But the starters, apart from Caldwell Pope, were – plus 11 Murray, plus 6 Jokic, remember it's a two-point game, plus 5 Porter, and plus 10 Gordon. That's why I say Gordon was the unsung hero last night. He was the best plus-minus player on the floor for either team um, by a fair amount. At some point, I want to start looking, and I I think people are going to have to start doing it. I understand what Michael Porter Jr. makes. I I guess Murray I'm sorry, Murray was plus 11. And I I get that. Murray and Gordon, plus 11, plus 10. He got he got the max deal, and I know that that's uh, 
it seemed premature. And at the same time, you're talking about the way the NBA hands these out. At the, I, I feel the Nuggets had a choice to make that gave them limited options. They made it. Okay. But at the same time, let's, let's separate out what Michael Porter Jr. makes. And in this series, he was between 14 and 16 points scored every game. He was in double-digit rebounds three of the four games. And even though in, in the final two games he did not shoot particularly well, he still hit seven threes. Well, which Jokic didn't shoot particularly right, well in the last few games either. Which meant that the Lakers had to respect that. And I, I think the evolution here of Porter Jr., who went from 12.8 per and seven rebounds per in the six against Phoenix to 15 and 9.3 against the Lakers is an, a somewhat undervalued part of this. He was the third leading scorer in this series, obviously behind Jokic and Murray. He was the second leading rebounder in this series. He was only a half an assist a game behind Aaron Gordon for being the third leading assist man in this series. He averaged almost a block a game and is assist to turnover ratio was really good. I I understand that well, I had one turnover, one assist, but yeah, in, one in game four, too. but the the, yeah. the uh, game before obviously was really good. And so I, I I get the frustration that it is difficult to detach Michael Porter Jr. from the salary. Right. It obviously is. Right. At the same time, when you go down the, the, the teams in this playoffs, and obviously there are only three left, but if you put Porter in there, and say so you have a guy that's going to get you roughly 15 and 9 a night. How many third best players on the playoff teams have anything better than that? Well, there's not really that I, many. I, I, I look at it maybe a little differently than that. And certainly the criticism I have leveled at uh, Porter, uh, I felt was fair criticism uh, when I made it. He has impressed me and I've said as much as these playoffs have progressed. I think he's one of those nuggets who from series to series, even from game to game within every series, seems to me to have gotten better. And and now he's finding kind of that uh, water-level mark of uh, 15 points and 10 rebounds. You're, in, you're so, around 15 okay. and 10. Okay. You're going to be in good fine. shape. Here's what I think is the key, though, that when Jokic is double-teamed, we know that Porter has a sweet stroke. Gordon has made the open threes often enough. KCP has made the open threes often enough. Bruce Brown has made the open threes often enough. I don't think that should be ignored. Porter and Murray are very good distance shooters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every time Porter shoots, looking at that stroke, I think the ball is going to go in, even when it misses by a lot, which it did a time or two last night. Same thing with Murray. Um, but the guys I don't and haven't expected that consistency from, the Lakers made a choice. We're going to double Jokic, and we're going to keep him way under 50% in field goal shooting in the last three games of the series. And as Casey said, you can look it up. Nine for 21 in game two, well below 50% game three. Last night again, below 50%. In game four. Last three games, each of the three games, he's below 50%. But here's the exchange. Gordon shooting open threes. KCP is shooting open threes. Bruce Brown is shooting open threes. 
and they made more than enough to make the Lakers pay for that choice. Terrific run by the Nuggets. Obviously, they played outstanding Will basketball. Barton in the past was not making enough of those threes, and, for example. And you can say what you will about Porter Jr. and, and some of the deficiencies in his game, but I would also say the one thing that the difference, and I guess I looked at a Will Barton in that, Porter Jr. took shots for the most part in this series, and really most part in the playoffs, in rhythm, within the flow of the offense, and shots that made sense to take, not just to take them because he was looking to score. And that's been an evolution of Porter Jr.'s game, too, and it was one that Will Barton never managed to sort of work around, and one of the reasons why that change had to occur. But now, of course, the Nuggets are Western Conference champs the first time in their history. I want to know your thoughts on it. The call and text line of 303-831-1340. But we will be joined with the one and only, of course, George Carl. We'll do that next on Miley Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Coach George Carl will join us in uh, just uh, a couple of moments here. We'll break down uh, what happened with the Nuggets and what, of course, it means from uh, one of the men who's helped build some of this uh, legacy for this team and and uh, now they are at a point where they have never been before. So a, a remarkable situation now for the Denver Nuggets, who uh, y- you worry, I guess, about a team cooling off, given the fact that you could have just an almost unprecedented break. People are probably thinking back to the Rockies <laughs> in 07. That, that when, was my thought, too. No, like, it's oh, not no. analogous. Right. I, I, it is yeah. not. But what was unprecedented and I think will always remain that way is that the Rockies won 21 out of 22 games that carried through the end of the regular season and on into the playoffs against the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. They lost one game in basically a month. Then they had to wait around for what was it? Eight days for the world series to start. I don't believe to this day, the Rockies would have won that world series. No, but, but they might I don't not think have it would have been a four-game sweep yeah, either. I think they would have at least won a game. It wouldn't have been quite as embarrassing. Uh, it, it ended up being a bad situation. I don't think that it is, as you pointed out, it is not analogous. Uh, this has been a long season. The truth is the Nuggets probably can uh, use the rest, and, and that's not the worst thing The Rockies in the world. were not the second-best team in baseball. Uh, the Nuggets in the regular season, I, I guess, were what? The fourth, fourth best fourth team in record. with 53 yep. wins. But I, I think, you know, it was, and it was kind of understood they coasted in the last month. Were and Boston if they to had come back. set to win 55 or 56, they probably could have. Yeah. But but listen, um, you know, in terms of home court advantage, if it's Miami, they'll have it. Miami's an eight seed. It's right. one of those years where you have a one seed from the West winning the way that a one seed should be expected to win. And then Milwaukee uh, in the East exploding or imploding uh, in the first round and Miami an eight seed on the verge of uh, not just 
winning a series against a one seed, but going all the way to the NBA Finals. Yeah, uh, obviously it's just been a, a a remarkable run for them. But then when you actually, if you've actually been paying attention, watching those games, it does not feel like a fluke. Uh, the truth is that since the playoffs started, the Heat have been better. They have been better. Eric Spolster has not surprisingly won the coaching matchup in every one of those series. And Jimmy Butler has been extraordinary. But, you know, we, we watched this run. The Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup last year, and they finished with 16 wins and four losses. The Denver Nuggets have 12 wins and three losses. And uh, could this history sort of repeat? But it's it's... Interesting to look at how dominant we think that the Avalanche were on their way to the Cup. Uh, the Nuggets aren't that far off behind them here. I mean, it's based, it's only one game different at this stage. Uh, the Avalanche had lost two, right? The Avalanche had lost two, both against the Blues. They had yep. swept the Predators, then they swept the Oilers, and, and they the won 4-2 to two against... Right, and the Nuggets won, lost and, three, that's and, it. Uh, as of now, Miami's only lost three, but the Nuggets are the best winning percentage team in the playoffs at 12 and 3, Miami's 11 and 3. Um, nobody else is anywhere close. Even Boston going in to the Eastern Conference Finals was 8 and 5, if mm-hmm. memory serves. Mm-hmm. And so the Nuggets have lost three. Boston lost five before they lost the three games they've lost against Miami in this series. Yeah, obviously it's been, uh, it has been pretty dominant. When you look at the teams they've gone through, okay, Minnesota, maybe not that impressive. I get it. But look at the other players that they vanquished. Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James. You didn't, you're not backing in to the finals here. Not that it's really possible to do so anyway, well, no. even though we'll hear the same thing about Miami when they, when they eventually I, I don't think if Boston. you go 12-3, and three, anybody's going to say you're backing in. But I get your point. Uh, they, they faced the best that uh, the West could throw at them. They were- and at least a month ago, I don't know about the Lakers, but the Suns were clearly favored to beat them in a head-to-head matchup one month ago. Um, the Lakers would not have been. Minnesota would not have been. Uh, but Phoenix was the four seed, and people assumed uh, if it was one, four, two, three, that uh, you know the two-three series might be a toss-up if it were Memphis and Sacramento. But the one and four would favor the four. See, now, that, that was a month ago, and a lot can change. But I mean, in a but month, yeah, but. The, the the Nuggets were not favored to win their series against Phoenix. They were not favored. That the, the Suns were favored to win. The, when the the time the series started between the Nuggets and the Lakers, the Nuggets and the Lakers had equal odds of winning the NBA title, meaning that they basically considered that a push. So yeah, but the the Nuggets were slight favorites, I think. But if, it's not, it's, it's it not as if that 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 the the Nuggets have actually faced teams that said, well, of course the Nuggets should have rolled through these guys. No, they weren't even favored in the middle in the series against Phoenix. Even, even people who uh, do predict sweeps, which, which I, for the most part, do not do dangerous game. Uh, Even for people who predicted sweeps, they wouldn't have predicted this series as a sweep. Certainly wouldn't have predicted Miami Boston as as a sweep, which it could be now. Uh, But, you know, again, you, you come back to, how unprecedented this is in the history of this franchise, up to and including their ABA history, they've never, they've never stormed through the field like this before. Yeah, obviously, I've... never, not even close. First sweep in the history. Even in the ABA, they didn't. They they played, I believe, that last year 
a seven-game series with San Antonio. George Carl will be able to confirm that. Joining us now to talk about that, of course, is Coach George Carl, Hall of Famer. You can follow him on Twitter at CoachCarl22 and check out everything putting together over on uh, Truth Plus Media, podcasts on sports leadership and human performance. Find him at truthplusmedia.com. Aha. Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, and, of course, the uh, Truth and Basketball podcast that he does. Uh, with Sandy and, and Coach, uh, thank you for joining us. I, first things first, I guess uh, your history with this organization, uh, seeing them finally claim their first Western Conference championship. Uh, how does that feel to you, uh, and especially given the way that this team has evolved under Nikola Jokic? Well, you know, Denver's my home, and I think I'm going to live there the rest of my life in some way or form all the time. So. I'm a fan now, uh, and I, you know, I, I still think the culture of, you know, Larry Brown and Doug Moe and and Carl Shear and and you know and uh, our run in the in the early 2000s, I think those were it's all part of the history that I, I'm just so happy for the Denver fan is because they've been loyal. I mean, it's not been a bad franchise. It's had a lot of wins. It's had a lot of playoff wins. But it's never gone to the, the mountaintop. And I think we're all excited because of that. And I'm, I'm really joyful uh, with everybody. I mean, Jokic is a, a dream to be a part of. Uh, a superstar as humble as he is. His humility is on, on display almost every press conference that he does. And then the way the team is playing is very connected. You know, I use the word connection all the time, and I don't think sometimes they understand. But it's very easy for me to see a team that's connected. And right now you have the two most connected teams in the NBA. They might not be the most talented teams in the NBA, but they're by far the most two connected teams. And their assignments, their intensity, their focus, and their demands. All those things are on display almost every night they play. George, you coached. Larry did too. Doug, during his time in Denver, teams that won more than the 53 games this team won. This was the first team to be a number one seed in the Western Conference. But Larry coached... uh, uh, at least one team here that won more than that. Uh, Doug did too. And uh, you did in 2012-2013 win 57 games with that team. What has made this team, not necessarily the winningest regular season team in Nugget history, even in the NBA, but what has made this team not only good in the playoffs, but a powerhouse, a juggernaut in the playoffs. Well, they're getting contribution from everybody. They're playing a short rotation. Everybody kind of knows what their jobs are. And they go out, and on almost every night, someone gives them a big-time lift in the others. And then the superstar of Jokic and uh, the growth of Murray into that superstar mentality. And, you know, you have all the ingredients of a championship team, 
And the one thing I like about this team more than any other Malone team is they don't beat themselves. Last night when they played, a, I thought, a really bad defensive first half. You know, they have, that, they have a, a flaw a little bit of trying to outscore teams. But someone yelled or got after them a little bit or someone just woke up in the halftime. And those first five minutes of the second half, I, really, I thought they were going to win all the way. After the first five minutes where they cut the 15-point lead down to four or five within like five minutes, I just knew that if it got to be a fourth quarter basketball game, that that Jokic and Malone, um, Jokic, Malone, and Murray are better than so many teams in the NBA in close games. Now that, that they're going to have this this long layoff, and I don't want to get too far ahead of things, we don't know who they'll be playing, but uh, seeing as they've played so well. Is there a concern about a layoff being this long where you can't play until the first, or is the fact that the rest more valuable in this case? Well, unfortunately, I think the rest is going to serve Miami because Hero looks like he's going to get back on the court. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, that might mess up their chemistry. You know, what, what you have right now is both teams are very well connected, and I kind of always say that in the NBA, the magic of winning a playoff or winning a championship comes in the playoffs. And there's no question right now that Miami has a little magic, and so does Denver. And, you know, it will become a superstar series or will become other series, will be an offensive series or a defensive series. All that is yet to be determined. Uh, the matchup itself, I'm excited about because I think Denver has more advantages. But we don't know that until it all happens. And, uh, and uh, again, I think the rest will, will probably help the games be more intense and more energized. But right now, at the, at the end of a, a playoff run like this, Denver doesn't need a lot of rest. They've done a good job of ending the series early, and they've gotten their rest. So I don't think fatigue is a, a problem unless it goes seven games. Then a seven-man rotation might be a little too thin. But most of the time when you get to, this, get to the championship series, most teams are down to eight. Maybe nine, but most of the time, most teams are on eight or seven-man rotations. How important was it, Coach, that Aaron Gordon stood up to LeBron James late in the second quarter last night? I thought LeBron James, in, in a subconscious way, tried to create a confrontation that would piss his team off. <laughs> and I think Aaron Gordon standing there and not backing down one inch and standing there and saying, hey, LeBron, I'm, I'm doing my job, and I'm not going to stop doing my job. And if I'm entertaining you, I'm doing my job. And I thought LeBron was kind of asking for help. Because, you know. <laughs> yes. And, and the whole thing came down to it didn't work. Um, I told you, Sandy, this morning that in a strange way, Denver is a physical basketball team. It might be 
right now with the four teams left. Right. Might be the most physical basketball team left in the NBA playoffs. But in that case, Gordon seemed to sense what LeBron was up to and did not take the bait. I basically just did not take the bait. I, there's a little bit of jawing here and there. They both got teed up, but it didn't turn into anything larger because for the most part, it, it is, it's like Gordon sniffed it out. Wasn't going to let LeBron get what he wanted. No question. And Aaron Gordon, uh, I've really, I've really loved how he's evolved this year. Yeah. It seemed like last year he sometimes tried to be too offensive oriented, got, got confused with offense and defense. This year, he's become our defensive stopper. He likes the role. He's good at the role. And, you know, he's going to have another another tough matchup coming up against Bam or against Jimmy Butler. He's going to he's – had, he's had four really good matchups. And guess what? They're, they're, he's got one more before it's over. He is George Carl. Follow him on Twitter at Coach George Carl or Coach Carl 22. Pardon me, Coach Carl 22. And check out everything over there at Truth Plus Media, truthplusmedia.com. And uh, of course, the latest truth and basketball recorded this morning with uh, as we speak. these uh, two gentlemen right here with Coach Carl and Sandy Clough. Coach, uh, appreciate it. I- I'm glad we get to keep talking about this at a time of the Never Nuggets basketball has never been spoken about uh, this late in the year in this capacity. So thanks for joining us to break it all down. Well, just remember, not many basketball players play in June. I've had the fortune to build. I, I yeah. played in June, I think, a couple times. Right. But playing in June means you're doing a lot of good things. Yeah. Uh, it most sure certainly does. does. That's what the Denver Nuggets are doing. Coach George Carl joining us. And, of course, check out the Truth That in Basketball podcast uh, when you have a chance over. You can get it at milosports.com or truthplusmedia.com, wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, Coach. Okay, guys. Enjoy. Bye-bye. The... Situation for the Nuggets obviously is remarkable. We'll be talking about it for a while. We'll find out who they play. Assuming, assuming it will be the Heat, unless something quite literally unprecedented happens. But uh, the Denver Broncos do start OTAs, and they have released, well, I'm not going to dance around it, the last piece of the last Super Bowl right. team. Brandon McManus out with the Denver Broncos. What does that mean? We'll talk about it next on My High Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Broncos start their next phase of the OTAs on Thursday. That was a lot of rhyme. I didn't mean to do it that way. But the whoever <laughs> the Broncos getting their uh, football-related substances happening now on Thursday. They will be doing it without Brandon McManus. The last tie to the Super Bowl 50 champion team released after uh, obviously being uh, joining the Broncos as an undrafted player at a temple in the 2014 season. He's been the kicker ever since uh, the head of the union for the Broncos for years and one of the better compensated kickers yeah. in the NFL. And uh, I think deservedly so. But the Broncos have decided to make that move. Brandon McMahon has said more to come in the following days. I think for uh, teams that want a veteran kicker, he will obviously have a spot somewhere. But for the Broncos, I think the the sort of confluence of a down year 
turning 32 in July, and making more money than significantly more money than the average NFL kicker all kind of led to uh, a conclusion that, while it might sound surprising to a lot of Broncos fans, might not be as surprising when you really think about it. Symbolically, I, I think it means the Broncos were intent on cutting ties uh, with the last player who was a part of that championship team in 2015 and, of course, since has been through a lot of losing. And I do think losing wears on people, and place kickers are people, too, after all. Absolutely. Uh, even if they aren't on the field as regularly as uh, uh, starting 22 or uh, starting 23 or 24, depending on whether you characterize third wide receivers as starters, sometimes they are. In most cases, I suppose in today's game they are. Teams start games with three wide receivers. Mm-hmm. Teams start games against teams, three wide receivers with three defensive backs. But you get the point I'm making. I think symbolically it makes sense. And uh, the two threshold figures for me are 80% conversion rate on field goals. He didn't hit that last year. No. 70% conversion rate on uh, touchbacks. He did not hit that in 2022. So there is a sense that a power kicker is losing some leg strength. Uh, I understand that indoor kickers – without powerful legs, can hang on forever and ever and ever and still be good. He is not an indoor kicker. He is a power kicker. We are seeing the same thing with Mason Crosby of the Green Bay Packers, who has lost leg strength and is no longer a reliable place kicker. 30th in the league in field goal conversion rate. And I like Brandon McManus enormously. I do, know him a little bit. I do, too. like him a lot. I think think he's had a tremendous career. I don't think it's over. But he was 30th in, in the league among qualifying players at field goal percentage. Uh, that if that's that simple, and when you're one of the top paid kickers, you're, the expectation is you're going to be expected to be better than 30, especially when some of, if not the raw strength is degrading, certainly the the accuracy coupled with that strength, although is eight for 13 from 50, uh, pretty respectable. It's respectable, but not as good as it has been in years past. Right, and uh, I remember last year we all do. Uh, the 64-yard field goal attempt at the end of the game on opening night in Seattle. Unrealistic that he could make it, but the fact that he wasn't even close was a sign of difficulties to come for Brandon. He was McManus. already 20. He was also, by the way, and I get, I get it. It's only two misses and still hit 92.6. But 92.6% on your extra points, saying he was good for 29th. So 29th in the league. In extra point well, percentage. He didn't uh, have a lot of extra points to kick right. last year, did he? 30th in the league in, uh, yeah, but that's per- per- percentages are percentages. And That's right. Uh, yeah, that's, 29th that's in, right. in extra point percentage, 30th in field goal percentage on the whole. Uh, the uh, the touchback rate went under 70% for the first time in three years in which he was notably over 70%, and especially in Denver. So uh, I, I'm not surprised that this has occurred. I, I thought that at times McManus was going to be on the outs anyway. He had some... 32 in July. Some, And he's a player rep. Bumpy relations at times with coaches of late, uh, as I think the losing got to him coaches, as one of the guys that right, won, a, right. won a title and has been frustrated about not him, getting their back. coaches who have been fired. He's yep. outlasted all those Every coaches. Every one of them. Yes, he has. And and I think he will... I think he'll do well. The Broncos obviously uh, did point out, you know, make a nice little release and pointed out how, how uh, much they appreciated his contributions over the course of the year. Remember, by the way, uh, as uh, how important he was, even with that defense in that Super Bowl run, uh, how important his kicks were in that playoff. Run. No doubt. He and, was and, money. And the and the Broncos had 
very good to great special teams in 2015, and he was a big part of that. 85.7% field goal success rate in that Super Bowl year, including five for seven from 50-plus. That was eight years ago, though. It was. From mid-20s to early 30s, and for power kickers, not for all kickers. That's a good point. For power kickers, age is more of a factor. Mm -hmm. It can be. It can be. And so, obviously, a bit of a surprise, I think, for uh, many fans, but I think when you head back and look at it, maybe not that much of a shock. The Broncos trying to get uh, younger, trying to uh, incorporate everything under Sean Payton, and I think we'll get a better idea of what that looks like with OTAs coming up this week. So, uh, congratulations to the Denver Nuggets, of course. Uh, it just feels like it's getting started. feels like, uh, <laughs> I mean, the NBA Finals are coming, folks. Enjoy it. You have about a week and a half to just uh, relax and enjoy the Nuggets as, uh, as the Western Conference champs. Thanks to Coach George Carl for joining us, everybody who joined us uh, on the call and text line. Appreciate that as well. And everyone who have viewed us on milehighsports.com, whether you're watching or listening or you're on the app. Appreciate that. We're going to hand things off to our friends at Afternoon Drive. Anil Apiro and Cody Rourke are up next. For Santa Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. For Danny Bailey and Andrew Demmer in the booth, we will catch you tomorrow, but keep it right here on Mile High Sports.